This is The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Good morning, it's John Moore. This is The Breakfast Wrap for Wednesday, June 14th. The weather forecast for today looks like cloud and a chance of showers, maybe a thunderstorm this afternoon. The high, 20 degrees. Here are the five things you need to know. Number one, Ontario is sitting on a multi-billion dollar surplus. Number two, the federal conservatives consolidating their lead over the liberals. Number three, Bonnie Crombie's long tease will end this afternoon. Number four, Donald Trump enters a not guilty plea in Miami. And number five, the Stanley Cup goes to Las Vegas. The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. It has happened in Vegas. The Cup's going to stay in Vegas. And for the first time, the Golden Knights are Stanley Cup on a Wednesday morning, and there's the end of the game last night. Stanley Cup going to Las Vegas. And I guess there's a million ways you could look at it. One is just great big shiny cup is up to a big, great big flashy city. But also you have to wonder what somebody involved in NHL hockey or a fan of NHL hockey in, say, 1955 would think of the idea of Las Vegas having a team and then one day Las Vegas winning the Stanley Cup. What were the odds of that? Indeed. It's, you know, for the original six, it's probably just a little galling. But, hey, that's what happens when you expand the league so much. I mean, one of the amazing things about hockey in its classic era and there's nothing wrong with hockey now, but in its classic era, is there weren't all that many teams. So you just concentrated. I mean, you'd have a, a, a lineup, you know, of three of the greatest players in the NHL all playing at the same time on the ice. And nowadays you take, you know, the 10 best players and they're scattered to the winds. But there it is. That's the end of the season. And the, if I'm not mistaken... Nick Marano, that is like basketball wrapped up on uh, Monday, hockey wrapped up on Tuesday. So now we're down to baseball, and there's no shame in that. No, and the way the Jays are playing currently, maybe the season is over for the Jays too, but no, it's still no, early. No, no, like, Come on, what, like a week ago, wasn't everybody saying the Jays, they're amazing. So I think we're good. But we're down to uh, baseball, golf. And I guess, when does the football season start? Because whenever I talk about championship teams in Toronto, people always say, you never mentioned the CFL. Football ain't my game. I mean, you know, I'm not a guy who spends a lot of time on the couch watching sports anyway, because if you go to bed at the time I go to bed at, then you never see the end of anything. Um, That's why golf, aside from the fact that I like watching golf, golf's amazing. Because, you know, the last two hours of golf of a golf tournament are going to be from four to six on a Sunday afternoon. I'm in. So uh, there's your result. If you're a hockey fan, you were watching. Well, not necessarily, because some people probably checked out after the Maple Leafs checked out. Um, But, you know, I have nothing further to add to this. That's it for this particular NHL season. Now we can go back to the, the usual ritual in the fall as things start to heat up of, is this going to be the year for the Maple Leafs? I know that the Raptors introduced their new coach yesterday, so that's going to be interesting. Uh, 
something we touched on a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about uh, sports was the fact that sometimes you cashier a coach or a manager, as the Maple Leafs did, and they go on and they have incredible success with another franchise. And it's all about, you know, there's a certain chemistry and kismet and magic to things. And sometimes it just, you know, you got to move on and maybe they'll find success elsewhere. So with this new coach for the Toronto Raptors, let's see what happens. I have to say I was somewhat surprised it wasn't making even bigger ripples, but we're going to talk about it today. Lisa Raitt, incidentally, former federal cabinet minister, is going to be on the morning brief, so she certainly has some reflections on government budgeting. But the Financial Accountability Office for the province of Ontario yesterday revealed that there will be $22.6 billion in excess funds over the next few years. Now, there, there are multiple ways to unpack that. One, this is a very fiscally prudent government, and we're on track to a whole new fiscal reality. The other is that this government doesn't spend on the things that need to be spent on, hoards money, and then turns around and says, look at that. My, I, I would take sort of the middle road in all of this and say, because there are some who would argue, as a matter of fact, I was watching the financial critic or the finance critic for the NDP last night saying this is about mismanagement. Not necessarily, because I don't subscribe to the school that when government finds itself with some extra money in the bank, that it necessarily needs to go, all right, what else could we spend this on? What? Let's, let's build a Ferris wheel. Uh, however, I do think there has to be some review and we have to figure out, okay, um, are there programs we are underspending on? You know, we just cr closed the emergency room in Minden, in the hospital in Minden. Is that because that is actually a prudent thing to do, or is it because we're being we're penny pinching, and so people in that region are going to necessarily suffer? So let's figure out where we are underspending, but also if you know this is money that is in excess, then wow. What if we paid down the third budget envelope, which is interest payments? What if we paid down the debt and started pulling ourselves out of that? You know, it would be amazing if we got to a position in finance where we could start paying down the debt and ultimately completely, can you know, canceled it. And there's nothing wrong with the government being in debt. It's the same thing as you taking out a mortgage to buy a house. It's just a means of borrowing to spend now on things that you want and paying it off later. But the thing about a mortgage is eventually you do pay it off. Um, although increasingly, senior citizen Canadians are retiring and they still have mortgage debt. But, you know, if we could pay down the debt, then eventually we would have scads of money to spend on other things. Or pff, wouldn't it be interesting if we actually got to the place where a tax cut actually would not impoverish the government. So, I mean, we could uh, talk about this one forever, but I'm going to leave it to uh, greater minds to interpret the fact that $22.6 billion in excess funds has been found by the Financial Accountability Office, which I'm sure Finance Minister Peter Bethlen-Falvey knows very well about. It's not like this was a surprise. I do hope, though, one quick addendum to this particular topic, the feds have been sending money to Ontario to be spent on very specific things. One of them is 
And I haven't talked to Peter or to uh, Mr. Tobolo, Minister Tobolo, who's responsible for addiction and mental health uh, in a long time. But there was a significant transfer from the feds for mental health and addiction. And I have been told again and again and again by people in the business of addiction and mental health that that money has not actually been fully spent. So if the government is sitting on money designated for certain programs sent by other levels of government, then I think that is a problem. You're listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. All right. So more about that latest poll at the federal level. There's a lot of takeaway here. Because Pierre Polyev's conservatives are pulling further ahead of the liberals, a very significant majority of Canadians think it's time for a change. However, they also add that they're not persuaded at the options that they're being offered. So they don't really like Justin Trudeau, but they're not thrilled about transferring their support over to Pierre Polyev, which almost makes you wonder, you know, if the conservatives had kept Aaron O'Toole and he had just soldiered on, would he have eventually gotten into the posture just with the natural tiredness that people have about an incumbent government where he was the natural heir and the natural next prime minister? And would Canadians be more comfortable about him? I'll never quite understand. You know, Doug Ford succeeded in being elected, but he did so in kind of a a peevish, aggressive way. And I always thought, listen, you're going to be elected Premier of Ontario, so why not just come out with a a very practical program, be a likable person, and you're going to be elected. And with Pierre Polyev, I don't know why, when he is poised to be elected Prime Minister, he needs to continue to be a sort of Canadian version of Governor DeSantis of Florida, where everything's a fight everything's about being a victim, everything's about spitting nails, just be a reasonable person. Because, you know, what? one of the things I like about um, some people in positions of leadership is if they just shut up and do the job. And, you know, that sounds a little rude when I'm about to pivot to the person I'm going to cite, but because she's going to be in studio today. Jennifer McKelvey, the deputy mayor of Toronto, has been serving as mayor since John Tory stepped down. And she just does the practical stuff. You know, I follow her on Twitter and it's like, we're putting in a new water main. I'm appearing at the Polish festival. I'm going to be reading the budget, the set, whatever. Um, I just, I think most people would like their leaders to be quiet, go away, get the work done, do the heavy lifting and stop trying to badger us and tell us what to do and what to think and just just do the job. But I can tell you that uh, 35% of respondents to the survey, this is abacus, uh, to the survey said they would vote for conservative candidates if an election were held tomorrow. See, that's an interesting way to frame things, right? Because as any pedant will tell you, we don't elect prime ministers, we elect MPs, and they form a majority or a minority, whatever, and then their leader becomes the prime minister. So people were asked, you know, how would you vote in your riding? 35% of respondents to the survey said they would vote for conservative candidates if an election were held tomorrow, up from 33%. Meanwhile, 28% of respondents would vote liberal, That's down two points from last month. NDP had 21% 
which is actually up three percentage points, which I find a little surprising. I realize that there's a bit of a bubble because you know, the media I consume and talk radio itself tend to cant conservative anyway. So the drumbeat has been that uh, Jugmeet Singh is finished and he's got to stop being such a coward and backing the liberals. But look at that. Uh, NDP is up 21 percent. Now, think about 35 percent for the conservatives. It's not good enough. It would be a very thin minority. And then you have to wonder if the liberals and the NDP would try to pull something where they would say, you know what, you've got like, you know, you don't really have control of the House, so we're going to form a coalition government. Now, that sort of stuff is very, very unpopular. But at the same time, if you look at the popular vote, uh, you know, what's 21% plus 28%, that's two, four, there's 49% of Canadians would be voting for a center-left and left part. Well, actually, there's no such thing as a center-left right now in Canada. Let's face it, the Liberals and the NDP are fighting over the same table scraps. Uh, 525, enough time to tell you that the Dance of the Seven Veils is going to end today. And uh, Bonnie Crombie actually filed the paperwork yesterday, so there's no surprise. But she will formally announce this afternoon that she is a candidate for the Ontario Liberal leadership. Um, she joins Nate Erskine-Smith, who's already running, Yasser Nakvi and Ted Shu. Adil Shamji is proposing he may run. He's been a very interesting presence on our show over the last little while because he's the medical critic for the liberals, but he also happens to be a former emergency room doctor. So he really does know what he's talking about. And he's got a pitch for a new initiative that I'll tell you about after we do the half hour headlines and traffic. And it's a little dizzy. Subscribe today and always hear the latest episode of The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Happy Wednesday. Look at that. And I guess I should never be amazed at how time goes by. Although a friend of mine once observed that uh, getting older is kind of like the end of a toilet paper roll. It just goes faster. Same amount of paper, but it seems to go a lot faster. <laughs> um, we have been getting ready, as you would see if you follow me on Twitter. And if you don't, you can, at Moore in the AM. And I posted pictures yesterday from the set. And uh, Lena Latavat from CP24 and I are going to be anchoring the mayor's debate tomorrow night starting at 7. But we're going through a lot of rehearsals because we want to make sure we get it right. I mean, these candidates want to show up, not minutes before, but they, you know, we tell them be there at 545. And I'm betting they'll probably not show up until about 640 because they're busy. They're out kissing babies, shaking hands, making speeches, meeting Rotarians. So... They will be in studio, and for two hours, we're going to pepper them with questions. And I think, as I was saying yesterday, you're going to enjoy the format because we wanted to introduce the word I'm using is velocity into the debate. For example, we stripped out opening and closing statements. I hate those. You know, Prime Minister, you now have two minutes. Good evening, and thank you for having me. It's, and at the end, you know, Mr. Polyevra, you have two minutes. Canada is blah, blah. Who cares? We're going to be all about questions all the time, including questions that have been recorded from listeners and viewers of CP24 and News Talk 1010. Um, we're going to mix it up. We're going to have surprise questions. Some of them 
I think will be very surprising because we're not going to be all pointy headed. Yes, we're going to dig into all the big issues, but we're going to ask some questions that are a bit less intuitive, I guess, you know, won't all be about how will you build more housing in the next 10 years? I mean, yeah, in the, in the major portion of the debate, yeah, but we're going to have these rapid fire questions where the candidates only get 15 seconds to answer and they don't know what the questions are. And I think that's going to be character revealing. One last thing before we move on. Yes, Anthony Fury is on the debate. And this is also the last debate. So consider the level of or the intensity of interest that people are going to have in this debate because it's the first time that Anthony Fury appears. But there was absolutely no way he could not have appeared because the last two cycles of polling have shown that he's out polling people who have long been regarded as established candidates. So what is the uh, somewhat goofy idea? And maybe I should ask Adil Shamji, Liberal MPP for Don Valley East, what the, the thinking behind this is. He wants to give everybody a statutory holiday that they can take on any day they want. So the idea is that maybe you want to observe a religious holiday, maybe you want to celebrate Martin Luther King Day, maybe you want to celebrate Saint Jean Baptiste, that would be the day you could exercise your holiday. However, there, this is a bit fraught. I mean, first of all, people of different faiths take days off in order for, for them to have their religious observances, but I guess those go against your scheduled holidays or the amount of holiday you're allowed to take. Um, but then you get into, okay, you're an employer. You know, Bell Media has what, 40,000 employees? And now everybody has one day off? That's 40,000 person days that Bell Media has got to figure its way around because somebody has decided they want to celebrate cookie dough day. So I, I'm not absolutely convinced at this. I mean, if somebody wants a day off, maybe they can just take a day off. So yesterday, Donald Trump appeared in court. He was, uh, he was not seen on the streets. Well, he was because the motorcade was going by and a lot of people swarmed the motorcade. It was a little chaotic. Um, but then the motorcade went into a garage. He got fingerprinted. There was no mugshot. And he spent apparently about an hour in the courtroom. And the guy who was marshalling the charges against him was not actually leading the proceedings yesterday for prosecutors, but he was in the room. And things were kind of tense. Joy Malbin has um, an account of how the day unfolded. It was historic. Donald Trump officially charged with federal crimes in a day that was filled with drama. Hello, everybody. Donald Trump didn't look like a man who'd just been arrested when he showed up at a popular Cuban cafe, a criminal defendant for the second time this year. I think it's a rigged deal here. We have a rigged country. We have a country that's corrupt. Fighting his battles in the court of public opinion. Food for everyone. We got this. Earlier, Trump appeared before a judge in Miami to enter a not guilty plea. He sat stone faced, arms crossed, fingerprinted, but no mugshot and no cameras in the courtroom. The former president is accused of illegally taking classified documents, storing boxes of America's defense secrets, including nuclear programs at his Florida home, and hiding them from investigators, a violation of the Espionage Act. 
Trump's personal aide, Walt Nauta, by his side today, also charged as a co-conspirator. Trump asked his supporters to come and protest, and they did, quite loudly. There were a few scuffles. Trump opponents like Dominic Santana wants to see the former president behind bars. I'm dressed up in a costume because that's what America has become, a circus. Rushing Trump's motorcade to make his point in a chaotic moment pushed to the ground by police. Trump has used his legal troubles to raise money for his campaign to be president again. And while many Republicans have rallied behind him, cracks are beginning to show. Most politicians get in trouble by self-inflicted wounds. We can't just deny what, that what President Trump did was wrong. I mean, it's clear as day wrong. The special prosecutor wants a speedy trial, but this could be a long process. The judge who will oversee it all is Aileen Cannon, a Trump appointee who will decide what evidence is admitted. That's Joy Malbin reporting for CTV. And you can't judge everything by the numbers, but let's face it. The size of a protest means that some people were motivated enough to leave their jobs, leave their homes, get on transit, drive their cars, whatever, but go to a protest, which is why, you know, nobody pays attention on the weekend. Every single weekend, um, there is a protest of sorts that is sort of an echo of the convoy protests, and it probably amounts to about 400 people, and they're all the same people, and who's going to pay attention? But if 25,000 people turn out in front of Queens Park, then the government kind of looks out the window and goes, okay, maybe this legislation's not so popular. Uh, so if you're wondering, they were prepared for 50,000 protesters outside of the courthouse yesterday. The count was about 1,000. So once again, and, and also in Manhattan, when Donald Trump said, you know, you got to come out and have my back when I'm being arraigned in Manhattan, um, the crowds just aren't there. They may be there for the rallies. They may show up on voting day, but they sure weren't there in Miami yesterday. Okay, time to say good morning to News Talk 1010's John Moore for what Toronto's talking about. John, good to see you. Nice to see you. Happy Wednesday. Happy, Happy Wednesday, Wednesday indeed, John. Good to chat. Okay, so let's talk a little finances, at least on the provincial level. Yeah. Ontario apparently is going to have $22.6 billion in excess funds to be used on programs or debt. Yeah, that's a whack of money. Mm -hmm. Financial Accountability Office yesterday announcing that uh, they're looking at $22.6 billion over the next few years in excess money. There's a lot of ways to interpret this. One would be that they've been underspending on programs and starving them. Uh, some people would argue it's just fiscal prudent behavior. But now the question is, what do they do with this money? And some would advocate, including the NDP, that it go to education and health. Other people, more conservative bent, would say, no, pay down the debt and then we'll have even more money to spend in the future. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, turning to federal politics, Pierre Polyev's conservatives are widening their lead over Justin Trudeau's liberals, and this is interesting to see uh, where that supply and confidence agreement with the NDP stands right now. Yeah, the latest poll from Abacus finds 35% would vote for a conservative candidate in their riding. That is up two points from the last time the question was asked in May. 28% for the Liberals, 21% for the NDP. An interesting aspect of this poll, though, shows there is a huge appetite for change in Canada mm -hmm. with an overwhelming majority saying they would like to have a new government. However, people are very tepid on the choices they're being offered. They don't really like Justin Trudeau, but they're not convinced that they 
they want to vote for Pierre Polyev either. That's interesting. You know, anytime, you know, you hear a lot of uh, political pundits say anytime the liberals are polling and the number starts with a two, that's a house on fire moment there. Uh, so we'll see if they can turn that around, John. In the meantime, Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada wants to restrict junk food marketing to kids. And I tell you, just you got to put blindfolds on them when you go into stores because they're just like laser focused on the candy. I'm trying to remember the phrase, and I'm sure some of our listeners are going to remind me via text any minute now, but there's a principle in marketing of food products where you get kids to nag their parents to the point where their parents buy it. And yeah. that is certainly what is behind these characters. And some new research done at the University of Ottawa analyzed kids. They basically asked kids up to age 12 what they thought of the boxes for cereal. Mm -hmm. And some of them had licensed cartoon characters, so like The Little Mermaid or another Disney character. Others had the spokes characters you and I grew up with, uh, the leprechaun with the lucky charms, mm -hmm. for example. Yep. Oh, yeah. The kids actually like the uh, characters that were created by the cereal companies much more likely to nag their parents for some, uh, you know, chocolate goodness from Count Dracula. I sometimes feel like I have to put on a show when I walk my kids past the cereal aisle just to get their attention focused on me <laughs> rather than the shelves, you know. It's just, it's a dangerous aisle, that's for oh sure. Oh my gosh. I yeah. mean, if it is for adults, it must be for kids as well. I'm a sugar tooth fanatic. Okay, uh, turning to this now, John, we touched on it yesterday, pretty historic moment uh, in, in Florida, Donald Trump pleading not guilty in the federal documents case. Donald Trump arrived. There were only about a thousand protesters outside of the courthouse. Uh, the Secret Service took him in through a garage. He was in the room for about an hour, actually had to sit there and shuffle papers while waiting for 15 minutes for the judge to appear. Uh, the arraignment happened, though. Donald Trump left. He showed up at a Cuban restaurant and said the whole thing was a racket and a setup. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, I can't believe we're going through this all over again, and I guess we'll see where this one goes. In the meantime, let's end on this, John. The Golden Knights, the Vegas Golden Knights, those fans have waited six entire years. Imagine how hard that must be waiting for your team to win six years for the Stanley Cup. All the Leafs fans are giving me the evil eye right now, John, but a 9-3 win in Game 5 last night. Yeah, they won in five games, but 9-3 is a bit of a blowout yeah. for a Stanley Cup final. And I just had to wonder when I got up this morning, because I couldn't stay up and watch the game, and I saw that the Cup is going to Las Vegas, and I thought, what would Jean Beliveau and Johnny Bauer yeah. have to say about that? And you're right, six years, and a listener wrote in this morning and said, great, 60 years for the Maple Leafs. Yep, 1967. Mm -hmm. Looms large, yeah. <laughs> Add a zero to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. News Talk 1010's John Moore. Always fun to chat. Have a great show. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Nick Dixon, Jennifer Sheng over at CP24. All right. So what else do we have this morning? Because uh, we've touched on a lot of the biggest stories and stories that are going to be debated on the show today. Certainly the one about the cereal will be debated. I mean... A lot of people would say, just look after your own kids. But I, I can't speak from, I, well, the experience I can speak from is having been a kid, not from being a parent. And when I was a kid, we didn't tell our parents to do anything. We, and, and you may recall back in the day, I mean, without getting to why I remember the telegram and I saw the Hindenburg, but back in the day, my parents didn't have cable. I don't even know if cable existed when I was like five or six years old. But you'll remember this. You got up on Saturday morning. The parents were sleeping in because they only had two days off. And then it was back to the salt mine. And you'd watch cartoons. 
and there would be commercials. And there would actually be commercials that would say, tell your parents to buy. But, and the additional jeopardy, or not jeopardy necessarily, but the additional downside to all of that. I won't say I had an impoverished childhood. And when my mother was still alive and she'd listen to the show, she'd say, you really make it look like we were monsters. Um, but we had CTV and CBC. And if we were lucky on a good day, if the weather was right, and you put like a, a copper wire on the antenna and attached it to the radiator, we might get CBS. So the days where we could snap on the TV at like seven o'clock in the morning and get CBS and watch American cartoons, that, that was just, that was magic. It was a miracle. But yeah, back in the day, there was a ton of marketing, but we never told our parents what we wanted or what they should buy because I just, I grew up in a kind of a dictatorship. So back to some of the day's big stories, including make of this what you will, because people are being extremely um, opportunistic when it comes to the Paul Bernardo file. It is outrageous that Paul Bernardo was transferred from a maximum security prison to a medium security prison. It is outrageous that the families were not told until after it happened. What I'm about to tell you is also outrageous. But when the conservatives marshal a motion in the House calling on the federal government to move Paul Bernardo back to maximum security, it's like asking the federal government to tell planes to take off on a different runway. They do not have operational control. So the latest revelation is staff in public safety minister Marco Mendicino's office knew for three months that serial killer and rapist Paul Bernardo was going to be transferred from a maximum security prison to a medium security prison, but they didn't tell the minister until after it happened. Okay, this is not a failure in the system. It's a failure in the minister's office. It's a failure of his staff. He should have been told. But as we're learning, you know, there's multiple stories over the last two weeks about things ministers were not told about by their staff. And you have to wonder if that's some sort of a, a subterfuge or a strategy where if the minister doesn't know, then the minister can't, you know, doesn't have to talk about this publicly. Uh, he was told... Um, let's see, he was told about Bernardo's transfer on May 30th, which was the day after it happened. And at the very least, you know, if he had been told beforehand, he does not have operational control to tell Corrections Canada what to do, but he could have called the families or called their lawyer and said, this is about to happen. And that would have been the kind of courtesy that might've softened the blow. Now I am completely on board with you that uh, Paul Bernardo should die in a maximum security isolation cell. But the idea that the federal government or the PMO can pick up a phone and yell down that phone and say, you got to send him back to mill. No, um, Corrections Canada has to do that. Or we got to change the rules. Corrections Canada is just following a rule book that was supplied through federal legislation, probably put together by multiple parties and multiple governments. That's The Breakfast Wrap. Thanks a lot for listening. My name is John Moore. I hope we'll talk again soon. You've been listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Don't forget to subscribe and get the latest episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And listen weekday mornings from 5 to 9 on News Talk 1010.